If you would get a Bible, let's turn to John chapter 20, John 20. Well, good morning, and it is a Q&A morning. This is our second Sunday morning in the month, and so we usually, typically, on normal occasions when I'm not gone, uh, this is the time that we spend uh, doing Q&A. Q&A, for those who are visiting with us, is where I answer questions that are previously submitted, hopefully in writing, in a way that I can remember them, and uh, I'm going to answer those, a few of those this morning. I have three. I'm assuming we'll get through three. If we do get through three, there's also this possibility that we'll be done early. I think that's, I don't know that that's ever happened in the history of Q&A, but uh, we'll see what happens with that. So uh, the first question is here in John chapter 20. Uh, it is, uh, could the apostles give and withhold forgiveness on God's behalf? So there are a few passages that we need to look at here, and uh, you'll see kind of the sense this is also where we're going to talk about the binding and loosing passages that are in a couple of places in Matthew. So John chapter 20 and verse 21. John 20 and verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. In fact, this is when he appears to them, the time when Thomas is not there. And it sounds a lot like the Great Commission. You see that in verse 21, I am sending you, uh, although we're several weeks before the, the Great Commission that we read about in Matthew and Mark. Uh, so the focus of the question is verse 23. Verse 23 says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So it certainly reads like they're going to have this ability, right? Whatever they Hold against someone will be held against them. Whatever they forgive will be forgiven. It kind of reads like, and I think one of the tensions of these passages, as you'll see, is it kind of reads like the apostles are going to be able to do their own thing. That the apostles get to go around and say, you know what, you're forgiven of that. You know what, you're not. You know, as if it's a random thing. And uh, that, that gives us some pause, and it also makes us wonder, is that really what Jesus means, uh, based on what we read about the apostles doing? But I want you to notice before we leave this one, uh, the wording, because the wording I see, I see as important. It is probably the most literal way uh, to talk about this, where he's going to be more figurative in the Matthew passages. He says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And then if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So he is telling them this is about what you decide about what other people's sins are, what's going to happen with them. And what God is going to do based on your decision. And that connection between what you decide and what God is going to do is made clearer in the other passages. Here, it just says they are forgiven, whereas in Matthew, it's going to say uh, it will be done or have been done in heaven. All right, so let's let that one sit for a minute, because that's obviously the basis for the question, uh, just what does that mean? And we're going to look at a couple other passages in their context. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. All right, so Matthew 16, we're just going to jump back to verse 13 and get the full section here. Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, so uh, Peter makes the good confession. You know, I, he says, well, well, everybody's saying you're this person, this person, this person, but who do you say? He says, I say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says... There's a blessing for that. He says, on this rock, I'll build my church, which we could talk about at a different time because we need to focus on verse 19. Verse 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I will give you, and the you there is singular. He's talking to Peter. I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The idea is that Peter is going to be able to open up the kingdom just like you would with keys and let people in and out. It in indicates an authority over entry. He says you're going to be the one to let people in or keep them out. There's another place in Matthew 23 where he talks about how the Pharisees shut up the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of the opposite of this. You're going to be able to open up the kingdom, but the Pharisees try to keep people out of the kingdom. And that was a problem for the way they were using the authority God had given them. He says in verse 19, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That sounds an awful lot like John's account, right? If you forgive the sins of any or withhold, then whatever you do uh, is what's going to be done. But here he directly involves heaven. Heaven, of course, is a metaphor or an oblique way of mentioning God. Okay, What happens in heaven is what God does. Just like he says uh, back when he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's the same idea. Okay, so... If you forgive the sins of any, if you bind anything, if you loose anything, it will be done in heaven the way you do it on earth. Those terms, binding and loosing, is a way that rabbi's work was described. So a rabbi in this time would take the Bible, take the Old Testament text, and they would, they would explain this is what it means. And then there would be a time, we would call it application. Okay? We would say, okay, here's the time where we say, what does this mean for us? And the rabbis would do that, and they would call it binding and loosing. Okay, what do we do and what do we not do based on this? What is this supposed to look like today? And that was the, the sort of Jewish idiomatic way of describing it. They would bind and loose things. So what he is telling Peter is, Peter, you're going to have the authority to bind and loose, to apply and tell people, here's what you do and do not do, and you will be backed by heaven. Okay, what you bind or loose will be bound or loosed in heaven. There's one other thing we need to say before we leave this one, and that is, yours might have a footnote. I'm reading the ESV. It has a footnote uh, by the word bound or by the word loosed because this is a very, very strange verb construction. Uh, it is a future passive perfect. Okay? We don't have a really good English equivalent. It would be something like, uh, let me see, I wrote this down. It will be having been bound, okay? It's something that whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven. So some people say, okay, well, the having been bound means, well, God already bound it in heaven, and you're just doing what he said on earth, and that could be. But it also could be just an odd way of saying what you decide is what God will then decide. So we're, we're not, the, the tense of the verb, I don't think really, it lends itself to the possibility, but I don't think it's a deciding factor in, do they actually have a power to do this? 
All right? Uh, So it's clear from leaving Matthew 16, it's clear that Peter is given authority to let people in and out of the kingdom, to bind and loose things, but it's not really clear how that's going to work, what that's going to look like going forward. All right, now we need to turn the page to Matthew 18 and muddy the water a little bit. Matthew chapter 18, let's start in verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, so we have a situation here where personal sin and disagreement escalates. So it starts with verse 15, if your brother sins against you and you go and tell him his fault and, you know, if he hears you, everything's fine. But if he doesn't hear you, you go to the next step, which is verse 16, take one or two others and establish all the evidence by two or three witnesses. Okay, so you have witnesses in a small group to try to convince this brother that he is wrong and that he needs to change. If he won't hear them, you tell it to the church. Then there is an effort made by the church to reach the brother. But if he refuses to hear the church... Let him be to you like a heathen or tax collector. Okay, so have nothing to do with him. He's not, no longer to be a part of you, according to verse 17. All right, so now Jesus then, in the context of church discipline, throws in almost exactly the same words as he said to Peter, right? Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he backs up from this situation and appears to give a broader reassurance that whatever you decide about this, whatever you, plural, bind on earth, all of you bind on earth, it will be bound in heaven. Now, I believe that when Jesus gives this promise here, he is talking to the church. He is saying that the church has the ability to bind and loose. I believe in the context, that's what he's talking about. Uh, That's the last thing he just said. Now, why do I say that, though? I want to show you from the following verses that I think the following verses indicate the same thing. Verse 19 Again, I say to you, again, as a repetition thing, I'm explaining what I just said. Again, I say to you, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. All right? If two of you agree, it will be done. Where two or three, verse 20, are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Where have we seen two or three in this context? We've seen two or three in the witnesses. Right there in verse 16, you take one or two others, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses. I don't think that it's possible for us. If we're doing diligent Bible study, you see two or three here and two or three here, verse 16 and verse 20, and say that the the things in the middle don't refer to the two or three. I think we're talking about when Christians are attempting to reconcile with brethren and trying to get people to come out of their sin. And he is saying, in some way, when you do that, I'm there in the midst of you, I'm working with you, and you have the power, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So, we have three passages then. Is that that water muddy enough yet? Okay, we have three passages. They seem to be saying very similar things to three different groups of people. 
One is, John 20 is the apostles generally. Although you might say minus Thomas because he wasn't there at the moment. But the apostles generally. Then in, in Matthew 16, it's Peter. And then in Matthew 18, it appears to be the church. While we might be okay with the apostles having that kind of authority, you know, because the apostles had a special role, they had a special dispensation from the Holy Spirit, uh, we would probably be a lot more uncomfortable with saying that the church had that kind of authority. So the question is, at its heart, what does he mean when he says this? What is Jesus talking about when he says, you know, you can open the kingdom, you can bind and it will be bound, you can withhold forgiveness and it will be withheld? What does that mean? So if we're asking the question, does Jesus give the apostles the authority to just make rules for God? Or the authority to say, my decisions are final. Then I think we can safely say, no man has ever had that authority. In fact, this is interesting. I had not really put this together until I started thinking about it and studying it. Uh, Jesus actually denies that he had that power. I can do nothing on my own, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 5.30. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me, John 7.16. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, John 8.28. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works, John 14.10. So if Jesus over and over again says, I'm not just winging it, if Jesus says that, then Jesus is not telling the apostles, hey, you can do that. Just wing it. Whoever you like, forgive them. Whoever you don't like, don't forgive them. And God will have to do what you say. I mean, it's a blank check. So I, I think we can safely rule out the idea that the apostles are kind of able, because Jesus empowers them in this way, to go around making decisions on God's behalf. And God says, well, I really don't want to forgive that person. But I mean, I guess Peter did. I guess I got to do it. You know, or, you know, I really want to forgive them, but he did get crossed with Thomas, so I guess we don't really have the option here. As if God's hands are tied based on what the apostles do. Now, what the apostles do have is the Holy Spirit, who enables them at certain times and on certain topics to be able to speak for God. So, there are more passages here than we're going to be able to go through. I'll just list a few of them. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul says... When you received the, the word from us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Okay, so you didn't just accept it as what we're saying, but as what God is saying. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 13, where he talks about how God has revealed his mind to us through his spirit. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Paul says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that I write are the commandments of the Lord, meaning Jesus. He's speaking for Jesus. And John 14 to 16, which talk about how the uh, Spirit's going to guide the apostles into all truth, all of those things. So, so we do have the apostles being able to speak for God, but, but we can't get that backwards. That doesn't mean that the apostles speak, and whatever they say, suddenly God has to scramble behind them and say, okay, well, that's now the rules, because, I mean, after all, Peter said it. It's the other way around, isn't it? That the apostles are empowered, and they speak, but their speech reflects what God has already said is right and true. They are revealing things from God. They're not revealing things, and then God has to shuffle behind them to, uh, to adjust the message. So, the real question is, do these verses mean that God will back 
whatever the apostles decide or whatever the church decides, that just whatever it is, we make the decision and God has our back. And so whatever we bind will be bound in heaven. Or do they mean, do these verses mean that God will be with us as our words and judgments reflect his will? To me, those are the two questions. Now, that first one, to say that God's going to back us whatever we decide, that would be really nice, wouldn't it? That would be really reassuring and comforting. And I do think part of what Jesus is doing is trying to reassure us that as we are trying to follow him, God is with us. Where two or three are gathered in my name, doing the hard work of reconciling a brother, I am there in the midst of them. I want you to do my work, and I want you to know I'm going to bless it. But that system is also really ripe for abuse, particularly when you begin to apply that to the church. And you begin to say, whatever the church decides is God's will. That invests too much authority in a group of men. And in fact, that's really the course Catholicism has taken, where you begin to say, okay, well, whatever we decide, that must be what God says. And so you have a long history of, of doctrinal positions that change with the times or with a new pope or with you know, new currents of thought. The second, though, that idea that God is with us as our words and judgments reflect God's will, that does... It, it, here's the problem with it. It doesn't seem to give justice to the force of the words. The words are very strong. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound. And so you say, well, it doesn't really feel the same, but that actually does better correspond with what we actually see as the apostles go out preaching. The apostles are not just given carte blanche about that. So I, I thought just to kind of sum up, a, a practical way to understand these passages is something like this. God gave the apostles a new revelation of his will. They could understand the new way God was going to deal with man. So a right relationship is now, from the moment that they receive this message, based on faith in Jesus rather than based on the works of the old law. And through their preaching, they could open the kingdom to people. People could come in. They had the keys of the kingdom. So they open it, they tell people, and people can now come to God through that relationship with Jesus. Now, as they preached, some people rejected that message, and the kingdom was closed to them. They, they would not go through the message of the apostles, and so they could not enter. As the church applied the teachings of the apostles, tried to live by the teachings of the apostles, Jesus was with them, and he wants the church to know, he wants you and me to know, that he is with us as we try to earnestly apply his will. When we do that here, and I, I want our elders to know this particularly, there are some, I, I hate to put it this way, but kind of dirty jobs that elders have to do, like, like doing these kinds of works where we go try to talk to somebody about their soul and they don't want to hear it and they're not interested. That, that's ugly and it's hard. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm with you. You're doing my work. So I think it is intended to be an encouragement to us, not because everything we decide is automatically perfect, but because everything we decide as we earnestly follow him, he is with us in. Where two or three are gathered, he says, I'm there. When two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done. So that doesn't mean a blank check for anybody. I'm sorry. If you were hoping for a blank check and whatever you decided, God was going to have to do it. Uh, that's, you're you're going to leave disappointed, at least disappointed in me. But it is a reassurance that as we, we try to work through this, we can trust the way God has worked through these men, and we can trust that as we try to apply those words, uh, he's going to be with us. All right, 
So that's that question. Okay, the second question is completely different. Um, this question is, does a small group taking the Lord's Supper at, for example, a nursing home uh, violate the teaching that we should take it as a group? Now, the, the idea of a nursing home is a specific situation that this person was asking about. We're not talking about a group of people at a home, but we're talking about, let's say, there's a brother or sister in Christ who's not able to be here because they're infirmed. And so maybe somebody will say they, they want to take the Lord's Supper, but they can't physically come to the building. So somebody will say, let's go take the Lord's Supper, the elements to them and let them take it. And so the question is, is that, is that an okay practice based on the fact that the New Testament teaches that the Lord's Supper is something that we take together? So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 and we'll see where that, that idea of a, taking it as a group comes from. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to start in verse 17. It says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now then there's a section where he talks about sort of the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, reminding us what Jesus said. He talks a little bit about how we partake rightly. Uh, and then down in verse 33 is where I want to pick up again. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. All right, so you have the idea in several places here that he's concerned about coming together, something that is happening when they come together. You come together, but it's not for the better, but for the worse. You come together, and yet you're not doing this in the way that you should. You come together, but it's not to take the Lord's Supper. When he says that, he's not saying you're coming together for some other reason. He's saying it should be to take the Lord's Supper, and you're botching it. Okay, you're not doing it the way you should uh, for, for several reasons. But the, uh, the idea is, look at verse 21. In eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So the idea seems to be that they are taking it sort of separately or in their own little groups and cliques. We know that Corinth had some divisions there, and it may be that that's playing into this. Some of it may have to do with uh, class differences. It says, do you shame those who have nothing? Okay, so some people don't have enough, so they don't, in whatever reason, maybe they're not able to get what others get. And so there's sort of this division problem. And so Paul's answer is when you take the Lord's Supper, this is something everybody needs to be a part of it. Okay? This shouldn't be something where some are taking and some are not. Some are already done and some are just starting. Take it together. Be unified. Be a group. And do this as an act of sort of a, a mutual community instead of each individual. So the question is whether something like a small group uh, like at a nursing home or a small group that's not sort of the, the whole assembly. Taking it is a violation of this passage. So let me just say this. I, I think we could probably all agree on this. I hope so. It's clear to me that when we read this passage, it means that as a group, our general practice should always be, we're going to try to take the Lord's Supper together. That's what we are. That's what we're going to do. 
we're going to make special arrangements so that that will happen. So that everybody knows this is when this is going to happen. We want to be here for that time. We want to take it together. That, that's the goal. That's the idea. That's sort of the, the base we're working from. Okay, so that to me is a, a proper application of reading this text and saying, I don't want to be a part of what the Corinthians were a part of that they get chewed out for here. Uh, so we're going we're to practice taking the Lord's Supper together. The real question, though, that, that's behind this question is, what do you do with the exceptions to that? Okay, when somebody can't be here, for example, there are people who would love to be here, but they can't because they're just unable because of their bodies or their care situations or maybe where they are located physically. You know, they're, they're just too far away. Um, maybe sometimes it has to do with work schedules. You know, we're just not able to be here because of a work schedule. Um, I've been in situations where I just wasn't able to find Christians who were meeting on the first day of the week. Just, I wasn't able to find them. And uh, sometimes that was, I had singled out a group, and then I was unable to locate where they were meeting. This was usually when I was in Europe, by the way. It was uh, awfully hard. I don't know if it's any different now. I haven't traveled in a long time. I had kids, by the way. So, um, you know, but um, it was hard to locate Christians. And so, you know, you, you make a good effort. You try. Uh, but sometimes that's just not able to happen. So, uh, you know, you, you have to ask the question, well, what, what about those situations? You know, is taking the Lord's Supper in situations like that, is that wrong? Should it only be taken when we can take it with a full group of the Lord's people? What, what, are, what, about, what do we do with the exceptions? Well, I, I think it's important to remember that Jesus expects his people to remember him. And I think sometimes when we get into the procedural part of how we do it, we might forget that, that this is something that comes from Jesus to Jesus' people. Okay, so look at verse 24, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-four. 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, remember, remember. That's what Jesus wants us to do. And we take it and we remember. So in an ideal situation, we're going to be with other Christians. And we're going to be taking that in a group. In exceptional circumstances, that might mean we take some other measures. That might mean we say, you know what, I would prefer to do it this way because that's obviously what the expectation is, but that's for some reason not possible at the moment. Uh, so in those situations, those seem to me, my judgment, to be appropriate uh, for us to do something like take the Lord's Supper to somebody who's not able to come. Uh, and at the time when I, was, I mentioned situations where um, I was unable to find Christians at all, I was convicted on the basis of 1 Corinthians 11. I shouldn't take the Lord's Supper at all. I couldn't do it in a group, so I shouldn't take it. And I'll tell you that that was kind of a disaster for me spiritually because this is a, the Lord's Supper is a time of powerful spiritual importance to me personally where I do some evaluating of my life and reconnecting with that sacrifice. It is a calibration for me. And I missed that. And it was very, very dangerous for me. If I had to do that over again, I don't believe I would say I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper in any form. I would try to find some way to make that happen. Better, I'm going to try not to put myself in that situation. But the idea is, what do we do with the exceptions? And it seems to me we're all going to have to make our own judgments about that and figure out, well, what do I think would be appropriate? Uh, do, am I comfortable with this? But I think there is the, the expectation that we take it as a group and that we remember the Lord and that those expectations we have to try the best we can to meet, understanding that there might be times where there are exceptions that we're probably, and let me also say this, we're probably sometimes going to differ about what we think is a legitimate exception, what we think is appropriate, okay? We're not all going to see that the same way. So we need to have some um, compassion and some uh, 
you know, uh, sympathy with each other about that so that we're not just constantly criticizing others when we would make a different decision about that. There's probably more to say about that, but I think that kind of covers the basis. All right, um, there's another question. I don't guess we're going to get done early. Y'all knew that, didn't you? Okay. The other question is kind of related, uh, which is, uh, does new technology, for example, the fact that we're live streaming our services, affect our serving of the Lord's Supper? So this is kind of, I put this together because it's kind of the same idea. Um, so we're, we're live streaming most of our services. Usually when the technology works, we're, we're online, uh, which means when we take the Lord's Supper, people can see it. And they're not here physically to take the Lord's Supper. So I think we need to talk a little bit about, it seemed like an appropriate moment to talk a little bit about what's our goal in streaming our services. Our goal in streaming our services is not so that you don't have to come here. You know, you could just stay at home. This is a big problem, by the way, in sporting events these days where people don't want to come to the, the football games anymore because they, they could watch it at home you know, and sit on their couch. And they get these great big TVs and great views, so people don't come. And if there was any concern that we might decide, you know, we don't want to come to the building because, I mean, you know, it's kind of cold. I got to drive the car. Might have to talk to people, you know, that kind of thing. If there was any concern about that, I am sure that our elders would have said, oh, we're not going to go with the live streaming. Uh, so this question is about, you know, the fact that, that being able to invite people into our services, and, and you should know, we do have people that watch our services. We do have people that listen to the lessons, and we have uh, a great blessing in being able to expand the reach of the word and the things that we're doing here beyond just, just who's physically present. And that's a blessing. That's a technology that's developed that we're able to harness and try to use for good. But there are some drawbacks because it might mean that some things are lost. It might mean that we're inviting people into our worship services that don't have any personal connection to us whatsoever. They don't know us. They don't know me. They don't know us as we pray. They're not able to say, I know what they're going through. They're not able to view us with compassion. They just don't know. And there are some drawbacks to that. 1 Corinthians 11.33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together... It will not be for judgment. So Paul says, wait for one another, eat this meal together. That's something that live streaming, sitting at home, looking on our computer cannot duplicate, cannot replicate. I think we just need to say this as broadly as we can. There is no intention that live streaming is going to replace your physical presence here at worship. We still need to be here in body and, of course, in mind and spirit. We still need to be here because we still need to exhort and encourage one another. We still need to get to know one another. We still need to be here to do the things that God expects the church to do, things that we cannot get from a video. Now, having said all that, we want people who are unable for whatever reason to be here to join us. I mean, we want that. That's exciting. But we also want people who are able to be here, to be here and to join us physically by being here because there are some things about singing and giving and meeting and remembering together that cannot be duplicated. All right, so I 
think that that doesn't affect necessarily our serving of the Lord's Supper, but I think we need to say that is our expectation and our uh, desire in that effort. All right, well, thank you so much for your attention. I got you done two minutes early, so enjoy those two minutes. We'll be dismissed for our classes.